0: This is a conversation with Rick Hansen. Hi, Rick. Hi there, Serge. And hello, everyone who's listening. (laughs) So, uh, you are a therapist who's also interested in uh, neuropsychology and has had a longstanding practice in meditation. Uh, How do all these things fit together?
1: Oh, well, thank you for asking. Well, I guess I would say I've always been really interested, I think like a lot of therapists, in deep causes of things. And so it seemed to me that if you could understand the mind through the lens of this very deep analysis of it in the contemplative traditions, and the one I know best is Buddhism, so that's the one I'll be speaking in terms of, that if you understood this very deep model of the mind through that lens, and also, had some fairly deep model of what in the world was happening in the black box of the brain uh, simultaneously, then you would have access to a whole lot of skillful means, a whole lot of capabilities to use the mind to change the brain, to change the mind for the better. And that's, in a nutshell, what I think about You know, when I'm with my clients. I mean, a lot of the time I'm just tracking the flows of the mind, if you will, thoughts, feelings, sensations, desires, object relations, all the usual stuff. But a fair amount of the time, I'm also realizing that in a certain sense, I'm not just talking to a mind, I'm talking to a brain, or more broadly, really, I'm talking with a body. And even more deeply, this body here is talking with that body there. And bringing it down to that level has been both very intimate and rewarding, as well as intellectually interesting, and it's given me lots of good tools.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I want to maybe stay with that image to just give it a little bit more space, a little bit more room, that it's not just uh, dealing with, say, an issue, it's not just dealing with psychology, but uh, it's dealing with mind, and it's really actually a brain and it's a body, and there's something happening in the interaction of these nervous systems there, and, uh, and looking at it that way brings some opening for you.
1: Yeah. I was just reflecting there, Serge, as you were speaking then. Uh, right now as we're interacting with each other, the brain is so good that it's easy to forget we have a brain. In other words, there are transitions of thought that are very smooth simultaneously. I'm looking out a window here, I'm hearing sounds in the background. Um, there's sensations in the chair. All of that is arising effortlessly in consciousness moment to moment. And meanwhile, there's all sorts of unconscious processes going on that's operating just fine, and it rarely reveals itself. And it's easy to forget, actually, that absent a, a hypothetical transcendental X factor, that everything that we're thinking and feeling, seeing, tasting, touching, smelling, and all the rest of it is right now being produced through its final common pathway by uh, billions of neurons inside our skull. And when you bring it down to that level, though, to me, it's interesting. I know a lot of people who talk the talk of embodiment, but they have no interest in understanding how it is the body produces a mind, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and when you begin to appreciate the degree to which mental activity is constantly changing, neural structure, and then in turn. Um, the tendencies of the brain, especially the ancient tendencies uh, wed, you know woven into it from the 600-million-year journey of the evolution of the nervous system, we start appreciating how those ancient animal tendencies are at work in the therapy hour or navigating an argument between two parents about how to raise their teenage daughter, a session I did earlier today, for example. Um, it gives you a lot of, boy, for me, it rounds out the picture it brings compassion, because you realize how much we're affected by these ancient tendencies. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you hope for how far humans have come with what they've done with them. Mm-hmm. And it gives you lots of ways. Because if you can stimulate the neural substrates of wholesome states of mind, you therefore strengthen them. Because in the classic line, neurons that fire together wire wired together. So I want
0: to slow down a little bit because there's a lot in in what you're saying. And uh, a part of it uh, is that sense of as we pay attention to embodiment, it's not just a word, but it's a realization that uh, what's happening in the mind is these complex processes of the brain. So when you are watching clients uh, and the interaction in this couple you're describing, you are watching these ancient parts of the brain act.
1: Mm. That's exactly right. And when you do that, uh, in a lot of ways, you don't need to know about the brain. I mean, Freud, Jung, many others, uh, you know, including more recent uh, therapists, as well as teachers and sages and just good friends throughout history have helped each other without knowing a darn thing about an EEG or the amygdala or anything like that. That said, I'll give you two examples for me. Uh, that are very prominent and real. One is a a real appreciation for how good the brain at, at learning, how good the brain is at learning from the bad, while being really bad at learning from the good. Mm-hmm. In other words, the brain has this negativity bias, whereby, in the ways in which it's continually being shaped structurally by the thoughts and feelings and even unconscious processes moving through it, it's profoundly vulnerable to being shaped in a negative way, because that's what helped our ancestors survive. It helped them focus around threats, uh, be intensely agitated around loss, uh, help them clutch tighter to us and fear and attack and exploit them. Um, these ancient tendencies are alive and well today. The problem is that even though positive experiences are the primary source the inner resources we all need to make our way down the long and often hard road of life. It, and very much uh, the resources our clients need. You know, what would make the difference for this client dealing with this situation or this issue at this time? It's always a question of resources. In a sense, we're in the resource building business. Yeah. Even if resource is simply uh, a wider existential frame for yeah. one's life, you know, and everything else is the same inside that frame. Okay. Okay. That's a resource still. So when the people pay money, they pay time uh, because they want to build up certain things. Maybe the resource is a greater capacity to let go of things. That's still a resource. Mm-hmm. Here's the problem, though. To get those resources in the brain, while we do develop some resources from negative experiences, the primary source of resources are positive experiences because resources themselves feel positive. It's they have an experience of the resource. That's the primary way to build it. Here's the problem. The brain is a bad learner in terms of converting positive experiences into underlying positive resources. It's bad at turning positive states, mental states, into positive neural traits. And when I really had that sink in, it was humbling to appreciate how many of the hard-won moments with my clients washed through their brain like water through a sieve, totally wasted. Maybe worth having as a momentary subjective experience, but in terms of lasting learning, which means encoding in neural structure, it may as well not have happened at all. Mm-hmm. That was very humbling. And what it has started motivated me to do, motivating me to do, is to work more with my clients to help them quote unquote take in the good. In other words, to take the extra 10 to 20 seconds to let learning land. To help it actually register, particularly as a felt sense you know, emotionally and somatically, to help it really sink in, whatever the particular lesson is. Because if you don't do that, the learning curve is very shallow, if not flat. But if you do do that, then you have someone whose learning curve is a lot steeper, and they're growing a lot more radically.
0: So so it feels very nice that examples works for me beautifully at a couple of different levels. One is uh, as a way... To reframe for a client why it's difficult to learn from positive, and it's not that oh I'm being that ne- you're being negative, you're you're, you're bad. But you're not also, failing a therapist. You're not failing, yeah. And the other part for the therapist himself, you know that example of you know knowing what happens under the hood uh, helps reframe. It's not I'm a bad therapist because I'm telling things to clients that they're unable to absorb. But if, now that I understand better how it happens, I have a way to actually help them in a way that I couldn't before.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So this method, you know, this idea of taking in the good, um, I say the brain is like Velcro for the negative, but Teflon for the positive. And research is, show, is showing that if you repeatedly do things like taking in the good, you can gradually sensitize the brain for the positive. So it becomes more like Velcro for the mm-hmm. positive. It starts learning more rapidly. So, so,
0: so the brain learns to learn better some things that yeah. it has
1: difficulty learning. Yeah. As a lot of trauma research has shown, as you know, uh, the brain is easily sensitized to the negative so that it becomes more and more affected by the negative and affected more and more rapidly and intensively.
0: Mm-hmm. Well,
1: the same way, the brain can be gradually sensitized to the positive so that it learns more rapidly from the positive and converts it more quickly into underlying good neural structure. Yeah, yeah. And that's where we get to the neuroplasticity. Yeah. And that's right. You know, the classic saying, neurons that fire together, wire together. I think we're all going to be singing that. In our <laughs> <psychology calculations and laughs> yeah. ceremonies, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's very heartening for clients to appreciate that if they're skillful, they can actually make changes in their own brain over time. mm mm-hmm. I'll say one more thing, if I could, just that's been a very practical takeaway for me about all this, is a whole new level of appreciation of the power of fear. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is, if you think about it, the primal emotion was fear. Rule one in the wild is, eat lunch today, don't be lunch today, right? Mm-hmm. And If you get eaten, there you can't do anything else. There's no more point to anything at all. So it's absolutely primally important. To evade predators, it's interesting, for example, in polyvagal theory, that the first branch of the vagus nerve is parasympathetically oriented, which has to do with calm and quiescence. But it also has to do with freezing or feigning death. Uh, and you know, we have, of course, excessive uh, parasympathetic activation today after trauma when people are just frozen and hypo aroused, as opposed to hyper aroused. So. It really emphasizes my point here about the power of fear, and it's striking to appreciate how much we experience living in a condition of threat level orange, even when, actually, you're all right right now. Mm -hmm. Realizing that fear is probably the first emotion, the circuits for fear are clearly present in the brainstem, uh, even before reptiles there was a capacity quite likely for fear. Um, and fear is with us today. So we have this ongoing sense of background uh, anxiety to make us vigilant, because Mother Nature wants us to be afraid, so that we'll be constantly looking around. You know, and you know, animals that were very relaxed and confident, shoot, they got eaten. You know, the ones that survived were always, you know, they were cranky and irritable and paranoid, and we are their great grandchildren today. So. Walk across a room without any sense of fear whatsoever. It's very, very difficult. But it's a kind of lie. In the language of Buddhism, the three great poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion, it's a kind of delusion. Because the truth is, most moments of most days, for most people, they're actually all right right now. They may not be perfect, it's not a million dollar moment, but you're basically all right right now. So, with my clients, this has highlighted my focus on anxiety and really um, had me, uh, I would say, help my clients a lot to do little practices like noticing you're all right right now or challenging the tendency of the mind to, to uh, overestimate threats and underestimate resources and opportunities uh, and to develop more and more of a feeling inside of moving through life when it's appropriate. Uh, without a sense of fear. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so so the fear is like that overprotective parent that we have outgrown, but still keeps clinging. And oh, uh, a sense that you can do without.
1: Yeah. I, I love that metaphor, sir. That's a great mm-hmm. metaphor. That's really true. I, I guess I think of, you know, because I'm a total geek and uh, uh, Lord of the... Uh, <laughs> Lord of the Rings, not Lord of the Flies is what I'm thinking about here. You know Wormtongue, that character in the in the novels who's always whispering lies mm-hmm, into the mm-hmm. ear of King Theoden? We have a kind of inner Worm Tongue. Yeah, well-intended, but still, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? So mm-hmm. Mother Nature is well-intended, but she creates a lot of unnecessary suffering in terms of making us feel more anxious than we really need to. And when you're anxious, the... You know, for me, there are three great uh, needs or motivational systems in the brain to avoid harm, approach rewards, and attach to others. And the most ancient of those is to avoid harms. It's the one that's most developed in the brainstem. And it trumps the other two. You know, mm-hmm. safety mm-hmm. trumps autonomy, right? And so as soon as we start feeling anxious, what happens is that people s- start muzzling themselves. They start playing small. They stop dreaming big dreams, and they also tend to clutch tighter to us. Tribalism and grows up, you know. Us, them thinking, splitting increases. Mm-hmm. Uh, people uh, feel afraid. So, you know, I've done a lot of personal practice around fear and found it very fruitful. And um, so, with my clients as well, I'm very zeroed in on helping them kind of lower the needle, uh, the fear fearometer, the fearometer, if you will, to mm-hmm. bring it out orange or even red, back into yellow or ideally chartreuse or even green. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so uh, so,
0: from that place, uh, you're not just in a place of treating, but you're in a place of retraining and uh, of um, uh, having people experiencing what it's like to first maybe think of the possibility of no fear and let themselves have a little bit of a sense of it progressively.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny, Serge, a, a very helpful little framework for me has been to, to think in, in terms of three ways to engage the mind. I think there are just three ways. Uh, the first way is to just be with what's going on. Feel the feelings, experience the experience, hold it in open, spacious awareness without trying to interfere with it. I mean, investigate it, explore it, feel it, bring, in it, bring it into the body, but don't try to change it in any way. Mm-hmm. That's one important way. To engage the mind. I think it's the most fundamental of all, because it's the foundation of the other two. The second way to engage the mind is to try to reduce the negative. You know, for example, let go of body sensations that are problematic, vent emotions, uh, see-through pathological cognitions, etc. All right. But then there's a third very important way to engage the mind, which is building up the positive building up the resources there. So I I myself am very interested in that focus with clients. I try to pay attention to the first two. But I like the third because it's often underrepresented. I think it's been generally underrepresented in clinical psychology. Um, There's a lot of emphasis on awareness practices, mindfulness practices of different kinds. There's also a lot of awareness of letting go of the negative, getting rid of the crud, but there hasn't really been that much focus on how to cultivate wholesome qualities, on uh, skillful resources, powerful, mm-hmm. resilience inside people. Mm-hmm. You know, if the mind is like a garden, you can be with it, number one, you can pull the weeds number two, or you can plant flowers number three. And I'm very interested in planting flowers in the garden of people's minds, which means yeah. their brain.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. But so,
0: so in a way, it's different from, say, the traditional or maybe a widespread understanding of what mindfulness is, which would be just the observation. And uh, this is, there is an action, and there's two levels of action there. There's the pulling the weeds and also the
1: planting the flowers. And there is, when you plant flowers, it makes it harder for weeds to come back. Precisely. You're great to talk with, Serge, and also your point about mindfulness. You really are naming something that I've seen very much in the culture. I mean, I teach mindfulness routine. I'm a Buddhist teacher. I'm a deep student. Not a perfect student, but a pretty far-long student of, you know, the Pali Canon where the Buddha, those are the Buddhist discourses. Okay. There's a deep misunderstanding of mindfulness that's prevalent in the culture, and it's very prevalent in the psychotherapeutic community. Um, Just being with the mind is not itself mindfulness. In other words, the first of the three ways to engage the mind, just be with what's there, is not itself mindfulness, and it's a category error and a serious one with implications to conflate it uh, with mindfulness. Mindfulness is to be present under all conditions. It is to be present if you're simply allowing the stream of consciousness to come and go without doing anything about it. Mindfulness is to be present if you're pulling weeds, and mindfulness is to be present if you're planting flowers, or playing tennis, or walking and chewing gum, or making love with your partner, or just staring out into space. Right, um, and I've had a lot of people actually push back uh, and say, oh no if you try to make deliberate efforts inside the mind, that's not mindfulness or that's non-dual that's not non-dual awareness <laughs> or that's egoic or that's striving and I think, wait a second here even as great a fan of, as, of mindfulness as the Buddha allocated at least half the elements of the Noble Eightfold Path to very deliberate efforts inside the mind like right speech, or right action, or right effort, or right intention, uh, right livelihood. There, you can even argue that right view is about cultivating a certain positive view, a certain accurate, useful view inside the mind. So, long story short, I'm a total fan of just being with the mind, and I'm a total fan of mindfulness under all conditions, but there is a place for getting into the garden and pulling weeds and planting flowers. And planting flowers is a skillful means. It's not just uh, planting flowers. Yeah. The other thing is that planting flowers on a foundation of appropriate being with what's there, you know, staying with it, not doing a spiritual bypass, as John Wellwood talks about, you know, jumping over the pain. um, On a foundation of what's appropriate, I like planting flowers a lot because at the end of the day, flowers are the point of life. So it's kind of the direct path. You know, we pull weeds to create space for flowers. Mm-hmm. If all uh, life was about was, you know, in a medical model, uh, not sick, well, that would be a pretty, you know, crummy life, I think, a pretty barren one, not very rich. Mm-hmm. So flowers are the point, generally. Second, um, including the flowers of profound serenity, oneness with everything, but that, too, is something to cultivate. Second, to just be with the mind. Just to hold it in open, accepting awareness, you need to build up some serious resources inside. Otherwise, it's like popping open a trap door to hell, you know, because you're not resourced to feel the feelings or bear the pain or open to your own experience. So planting flowers aids being with the mind altogether. And then third, planting flowers is motivating. You know, how many therapists it takes to change a light bulb, right? Only one (laughs) that the light bulb has to want to change? You know, how do we get this light bulb to want to change? And You know, there's a place for the hard, primal screaming, what have you, of letting go of the crud, pulling the weeds, okay, but it's not very motivating to Mm -hmm. feel all that pain and and to help it release, you know, whereas it's very motivating to plant flowers because it's usually based on a pleasant experience. So I find clients are much more eager to participate in therapy and and be the light bulb that wants to change if uh, part of the focus of the therapy I'm doing with them is on cultivating flowers.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so so uh, so that's a sense of being in the experience of
1: changing for the better and seeing it. Yeah, that's a great point you're making, too, because, you know, I think I forget her name. There's a psychoanalyst, I guess, in the 30s or 40s, no, no coincidence, I think, a woman as a rebuke to the male psychoanalytic establishment. She said, the client or patient does not need a new idea. In other words, a perfect interpretation. The patient does not need a new idea. The patient needs a new experience. Mm-hmm. And as you well know, Serge, um, you know, experience is the fundamental matter, it's the fundamental teacher. So, you know, we're wounded in our emotions, in our sensations, in our desires. Uh, thought follows that. Uh, we are going to be healed in our sensations, our emotions, and our desires, and our behaviors as a result. And thought will follow that as well. I mean, there's a place for insight. Um, there's a place for cognitive work, I think. Uh but at the end of the day, where the work has real traction is down in the belly in terms and that's where to me belly learning is what I'm very interested in. How do you um how do you help structural change to occur in the subcortical and brainstream brainstem rather regions of the brain, which are the primary source of our emotions, our motivations? The craving that leads to suffering and harm, our addictions, uh, our bone deep sense of, of bonding with other people, our fundamental sense of worth uh, ourselves, and our our sense of energy, the whole the healthy passions, that's down in the subcortical and brainstem floors of the three-floor structure or house of the brain. And the way to change uh, structure in the subcortical regions and the brainstem is to have experiences that tap subcortical processes and brainstem, brainstem processes very much because you create structural change by having in, in systems that you want to change by having experiences that draw on and activate those systems. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's really hard to change those systems when you're not activating those systems because activating those systems is the doorway to turning a mental state to a neural trait. That's why I think work that you do so importantly uh, is is great, because it um, activates useful states that tap people very viscerally, which then become an opportunity for building up very, very important neural traits. Yeah,
0: so so in other words, that the... uh these uh, older, these subcortical part of the brains do not speak the more sophisticated language of language. They understand experience, and so by providing experience, they have
1: something to work on and assimilate. That's well said. Much more summary. You said that much more elegantly than I did.
0: As I summarize, yes. So, uh, so what comes up a lot in, uh, in, in what you're talking about is there is a vision of not just treating people, but a sense of actually having a vision of what it's like to be a human being and transmitting that experience in a way that helps your clients build resources.
1: Oh, thank you. I, I think that's really true. I mean... If you think about the relationships that have been transformational for oneself and what was it in that, I, I know I I know for myself that very often is that I was with someone who saw something beautiful inside me. And often it was something that I had not seen inside myself, or I had lost faith in, or I'd lost my nerve about really uh, living from that part or protecting it. And in the same way, I think as therapists, we give our clients an enormous gift by seeing what's beautiful in them.
0: Mm-hmm. We need
1: to see the whole mosaic, all the tiles in the mosaic, but to be in the room with someone who very authentically, I mean, the way I look at it, they buy my time, but they don't buy my mind or my heart uh, inside that frame. And very authentically, I'm seeing something that's true in them, as you are with your own clients. And to be in a room with someone who sees what's beautiful about you mm. is just a profound gift yeah. that we can give our clients. And it creates a vision of the positive possible that could be if they just keep going in that direction. Yeah, but so the converse of it or that you're
0: saying is also that as a therapist, the focus is also to be open to the possibility of something good and be on the lookout, you know, not to be focusing on what is wrong, what is not functioning, but have that openness, that there is something good, and that it it is of great value to see it and reflect it.
1: Yeah, I, I, for example, I was talking with someone earlier today, and I'll disguise the details very slightly, but... Uh, this was a parent, a father, who was kind of locked in a wrangle with his son. And the truth was, the dad had, while the son was a teenager, been way too critical, way too harsh, had really lost his temper. It was not in the category of reportable abuse, but it was definitely uh, way too driven and demanding and intense and negative. Okay, now, years later, the son is really at odds with the father, and the mother is allied with the son against the dad. And they keep banging on the dad to really take responsibility for his impact on his son when his son was a teenager. All right? The dad says, wait a, wait a, wait a, wait a, there's all this other truth here. I was a good guy. I wasn't a bad father. I mean, I was tough, all right. I lost it a few times, I'm not going to deny that, but it wasn't as bad as you're saying. And so they go round and round and round because the mom and the son are banging on the dad's door. Hey, dad, you just gotta get it that one slice of the pie of the whole big picture had to do with you being way too harsh and getting way too caught up in your own trips about how your son would be. So, and I can see that as well. There's a stuckness in the system because I'm seeing all the players in various ways. Um, and so, I to help the dad though get in an unreserved wholehearted, um, undefended way, like people are like when, for example, they're very seriously sober and have been sober for a number of years. They're very open about their alcoholism or drug addiction. There's, There's an undefended sincerity about it that calms everybody else down. For him to get to that acknowledgement of that slice of the pie, he has to feel seen for the rest of the pie that's about him being a really good guy. And also about his son having issues that have nothing to do with him personally. Mm-hmm. As well. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So paradoxically, what worked was that I really named and I could see authentically ways that he had been a wonderful father, that his nature was to love. And he was a very loving person. And in I think in his experience of me really seeing those beautiful qualities of in him he could then be more able to own his slice of the pie, or honestly, he'd been kind of a jerk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so
0: that, that uh, what struck me as you describe this is uh, you use the word undefended sincerity, and uh, it captures very much that place where, you know, the resistance, the tightness, the uh, not moving, the stuckness is going to come from a place of needing for a defense, and that, uh, you know, seeing the beauty in this person and in this
1: person's behavior is the way to open that up. Yeah. I think that, you know, funny way for many people, the last taboo is to claim and own that they are actually a good person. Yeah. That's like the hardest thing. And it doesn't mean you're a perfect person, you don't need to wear a halo and all that. Uh, but you're a good person. And it's very interesting to work on that as well, and to help that, again, take in the good, help it land, uh, help it convert to neural structure, that you actually are, deep down, a well-intended, caring, just, you know, justice, fairness kind of person. And you can really see people's faces change when they have that sink in. I know for myself that, uh, as I've gone down my own path of claiming that, in myself, it's really made a big difference for me.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, uh, so that in a way, uh, as the the gift of having a therapist who is able to see the goodness in the client, and uh, that probably is more possible if, as a therapist, we see the goodness in ourselves.
1: I think you've said it again, very, very well. Um, yeah, and then again to let it sink, to help it sink in, again and again and again. Um, you know, in a funny way, a, a recurring theme in my own sort of engagement with evolutionary neuropsychology, or as I call it sometimes to myself when I put my decap on, applied neurodharma. But anyway, <laughs> when I you know engage that, one of the themes that keeps coming forward again and again is around modesty or humility. In mm-hmm. other words, if you are really modest as a 21st century mind, you appreciate how much that mind is arising out of a Paleolithic brain, a Stone Age brain, Mm -hmm. which really is arising out of, you know, a crab-like or fruit fly-like nervous system. And that's humbling. And it kind of brings you down to your roots. You realize, you know, you really have to take care of the whole inner menagerie inside your skull. Not just the highfalutin 21st century, you know, urban, on top of the world uh, uh, character, but the inner caveman, cavewoman, the inner monkey, the inner squirrel, the inner rat, the inner crocodile, the inner crab, the inner worm, right? Mm-hmm. Now we have to take care of all of those characters and surrender to being that entire menagerie as who we are. That's who we are. Mm-hmm. and. There's kind of a intimacy about that. You become intimate with yourself and you become humble, become a lot more compassionate with other people. I mean, for me that's been a very important piece of this. And in a weird way, it hasn't made me feel inadequate. It's brought me home. It's helped me feel a oneness, really, with all of nature. Mm-hmm. You're naturalizing the mind, as it were. You're embedding it it in nature altogether. Yeah, but so
0: so. It's uh, it's owning what is, yeah. so there is a calming effect in that that um, you don't have to live up to a pretense of being something else than the squirrel mind.
1: I know there's a kind of self acceptance, you know, that happens when you do that, uh, and and also though, as with this humility, you realize that are clever ideas that we focus on so much in therapy, you know, the correct interpretation. I was trained psychoanalytically as well as in other modalities, so I know about it. Uh, And, you know, for most of the brain, what really matters gets internalized. It needs a lot of repetition to internalize. In a sense, as you go down the brain, you go back in time. And as you go back in time, those earlier structures have much, have less and less neuroplasticity. In other words, it's harder and harder to get them to change, which means, therefore, they need more and more repetition and more and more intensity of learning for them to possibly change, which is what, of course, we're going after in psychotherapy, positive change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so realize that a lot of your... Well, I've realized, at least, I don't know about you, Serge, but i realized for myself that a lot of my clever yap is... Just egoic on my part and not helpful to my client. Yeah. I know it and I still do it. <laughs> you know, okay, we're going to have a, like an A. To, we're going to have, hi, I'm Rick, and I'm, well, I still have an opening line. Hi, I'm Rick, I'm a uh, highfalutin or something. Right, right. I'm addicted to clever ideas. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love telling my clients how to think about things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. I admit it. Mm -hmm.
0: So so that feels very nice. There is something, you know, that as you're talking about this, there is um, a lot of um, uh, transmitting the outlook, you know, that richness of having thought out things from different perspectives, but also uh, that what I'm experiencing is the presence uh, of you being in the moment uh, and not, um, you know, just um, uh, spouting out ideas.
1: Well, good, thank you. Thank you. You know, they say in Tibet, if you take care of the minutes, the years will take care of themselves. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's part of the humility too—is to realize that what's within our reach is probably the next five seconds. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So, thanks a lot for sharing this oh, and sir. sharing, sharing this moment. A... This recording is part of the podcast at relationalimplicit.com. I think, you know, that as you're talking about this, there is um, a lot of um, uh, transmitting the outlook, you know, that richness of having thought out things from different perspectives, but also uh, that what I'm experiencing is the presence of, uh, of you being in the moment, uh, and not, um, you know, just, um uh, spouting out ideas.
1: Well, good. Thank you. Thank you. You know, they say in Tibet, if you take care of the minutes, the years will take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's part of the humility too, is to realize that what's within our reach is probably the next five seconds. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So thanks a lot for sharing this well, and sir, sharing, sharing, sharing this, this moment. This is part of the Active Pause podcast. To see more and subscribe to the newsletter, go to activepause.com.